0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
1: This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network. I'm here with uh, Peter Mombards. And Peter is a is a neuroscientist who has been specialized in in the development of the nervous system, the wiring of nervous systems. And Peter, um, you were telling you, you were telling us this morning that you, you chose the olfactory system of the mouse as your as your target system. So why why is that?
0: At heart, I'm a geneticist, molecular biologist, and when these odorant uh, receptor genes were discovered in 1991, I felt that there was a great way of um approaching um the nervous system particularly development in a genetic and molecular way mm-hmm. because that's 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 what I'm at heart and um indeed with time we have learned that using these odor receptor genes of which there are a very large number in the mouse 1200 we can differentially stain and manipulate Um, populations of olfactory neurons each expressing Mm. one of these receptors and that's a very unique experimental advantage that the olfactory system of the mouse offers at this time.
1: Right, so that was really a big discovery in the early 90s, right? That The idea that actually individual receptor neurons would be, if you want, tagged by by single genes or would express single genes.
0: Yes, the um, the history of research and olfaction, in my view, can be uh, divided in a pre- and post-1991 era, uh, with the paper of Linda Buck and Richard Axel published in uh, in April 91, and it was the discovery of these uh, odon receptor genes that really made, um, take a proper experimental investigation of this of this uh, system possible. At that time, it was not known that there would be only one gene expressed per neuron. It looked like that from the beginning that a small number of genes would be expressed by a given cell and more and more the evidence is consistent perhaps, perhaps asymptotically with this one neuron, one gene role.
1: Mm-hmm. So that in some sense, now given, given that you uh, were exposed to this uh, discovery, you saw this as an opportunity to now have a, have a specific preparation to understand how this system might wire itself but why, in particular, an olfaction? You could also have gone for, for, let's say, any other system where you might have some genetic label to look at wiring. So what makes the olfactory system so appropriately uh, sculpted for that?
0: Well, not all decisions made by scientists are rational. <laughs> okay, <laughs> There's also something called gut feeling. And uh, back then, I felt this was a wonderful new new field. Also, it was new, right? It was a new, uh, a new approach. And I, I haven't regretted since then. There may be more interesting systems for other questions, but... Uh, the questions I um, started to get interested in about 20 years ago are still the questions I'm interested in now that I think about every morning when I take a shower, and as long as that's the case, I think I will continue to work on it. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So now, what's the... Can, can you give... So this morning, you, you spent quite some time to, to to sketch out for us the basic structure of this mouse olfactory system. So so before we start looking at, at the details of, of your discoveries, what are the key elements of this olfactory say, uh, system that we should keep in mind?
0: So anatomically and molecular, there is a division in different chemosensory structures in the nasal cavity, in the nose. You have the main olfactory epithelium, which contains several million olfactory sensory neurons. We don't really know the number, by the way, but it's several million, each expressing one of these 1,200 auto-receptor genes that Buck and Axel described. Then you have the septal organ, a specialized structure, which contains approximately 10,000 uh, olfactory neurons and half of these express the same receptor called SR1, which is a rule breaker as I- these neurons are activated by a very wide variety of chemicals. We have the vomeronasal system, abbreviated VNO, vomeronasal organ, which doesn't express these odor receptor genes but two other families of G-protein-coupled receptor genes, V1R genes and V2R genes, v vom vombron approximately 300 in total. And then finally, a very small chemosensory structure at the tip of the nose called the Grüneberg ganglion, abbreviated GG, maybe 500,000 cells that's perhaps mostly active in neonatal newborn newborn mice. So there's already quite some complexity of chemosensory anatomical structures in the nose and the corresponding repertoires of chemosensory receptor genes. Not surprisingly, as mice are highly um, chemosensory organisms, they rely less on their sense of vision as as we do, for instance. These neurons are all uh, projecting one axon, one nerve ending to the brain, to the Main olfactory bulb or the accessory olfactory bulb. And in the bulb, each axon terminates only in one of the so called glomeruli, of which are about 3,600 in the mouse. So, for the main olfactory system, which detects what we call garden variety type of odorants, the picture is as follows. We have 1,200 genes. Most of these are expressed in olfactory neurons, but only one gene per cell. Neuron. Each neuron has one axon, and it enters one glomerulus in the bulb, where it then um, synapses with second-order neurons. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So then, so, so now we have this structure, which is fairly layered, and so it seems to have a, it must have some some tight control over how it is this is wired up. And an added complexity of the system is that actually there's a continuous turnover of these, these receptor neurons. So now the, the real problem becomes, okay, in this layer where it hits the olfactory bulb, these nerve endings form then these, these glomeruli. And how is the specificity of the organization of these glomeruli now assured?
0: So during development, and quite quickly during development, I would say the first few days after birth, this glomerular array matures, finally forming these approximately 3,600 glomeruli. And the neurons that express the same receptor project their axons to the same glomeruli. In fact, they form these glomeruli. It's not that the glomeruli are there and they just have to project their axons to them. And this glomerular array, or glomerular map, if you wish, Develops quite reproducibly, left and right bulb in the same individual and from mouse to mouse. It's not so reproducible that it's stereotyped. We cannot draw a map with coordinates on the bulb and say this is this glomerulus for this receptor. But it's very, very um, reproducible or recognizable. What that means for the function of olfaction, for the coding, or decoding is not clear. But there is clearly a spatial map that develops. Quite early, very precisely, in in the mouse.
1: So that, and also you you then went to describe how this kind of labeling could occur. So there was this idea of zones, right? That maybe there are zones that sort of define a sort of a rough kind of chemotopic map in which you can place your glomeruli in, in the olfactory bulb. In the olfactory yeah. bulb, yes. Do you think that's still a plausible scheme?
0: So there have been been several attempts and uh, several papers over the years in different model systems to ask with various electrophysiological or other methods are there particular types of, of chemicals that certain regions of the bulb are more sensitive to than others that's called chemotopy so that would be a chemical structure somehow to the glomerular array we don't know of course a priori what are the valid uh, features that would be extracted, is it uh, chain length Uh, saturated, unsaturated bonds, molecular weight, and so on, we don't really know this in advance. But there have been attempts, and there is some evidence that finds that, and some other evidence that doesn't find it. To some extent, one can find what one wants to find, right?
1: (laughs) No, but wait, but there's an important thing you said earlier. You said, okay, across individual mice, you find a rough chemotopic map. There's just some jitter with these glomeruli, how it's placed in that if you want matrix. Yeah, But um, that That would suggest that there is some sort of zoning if you want uh, of of this bulb in in development
0: yeah so the chemical logic of the glomerular ray is not not overwhelming um, but it's not the case that each part of the bulb is equally sensitive to all odorants, right that would be the other extreme yes, there right. is some some kind of regionalization, but it's not overwhelming, and we don't really also know in the end what that means functionally you know if if it's no but for if, instance, if, it's if I it's I a byproduct of it doesn't th- make
1: sense. No, let's let's do a thought experiment. I mean, if we take a mouse, we we present it with lemon. Uh, now we see some glomerulus light up in its olfactory bulb, and I ask you, go show, go find that same glomerulus now in, in another mouse. Then you would take the location of this identified glomerulus to start your search, right? What's the probability distribution around that that point in space to find the glomerulus that will also respond to this? To this lemon odor,
0: there have been a few studies looking at that anatomically, and the level of uncertainty, if you wish, or variability mm-hmm. is maybe in the order of one, one point five, two percent. So even between the left and the right bulb, that's probably mm-hmm. a, a better way of looking at it. If you know the positions of glomeruli in the left bulb, you can't really, to the level that we would like to find the positions of the glomeruli on the other bulb, we cannot make an atlas in other words, right? <laughs> Unlike, for instance, in the, in the honeybee or the drosophila, where you mm. ha- you have, people have been able to make an atlas mm-hmm. and say precisely this glomerulus and this position with this shape, volume, and so on, that is that glomerulus, and I give it a name. Mm-hmm. That we cannot do in the mouse or the rat uh, thus far.
1: M- but it, uh, implicitly, I have the feeling you're saying that, that you believe that there's not a strong structuring but in some sense, if we would try to do this more quantitatively and I say, okay, if I have XYZ of an identified glomerulus, now I need XYZ Z plus some delta to find it in another animal with the probability 90%, let's say. Yeah, there's certainly. What, a, how big uh, is that delta?
0: Yeah, there's certainly a probability. So the, I think the best way of, of visualizing this variability is to. Um, to look at two glomeruli at the same time, for instance, of two strains of mice with a different marker, maybe one like Z, the other one GFP, cross them together, and then glomerulus A and B would be on the left side, for instance, A more lateral than B, and on the right side, maybe the other way around, mm-hmm. right? And these are, this is more than whole distortions of the map you could think perhaps that the bulb would be a little bit squeezed and things would be a little bit more anterior posterior but if you have internal rearrangements medial lateral uh, relative positioning that is inverted then then that clearly shows there is an underlying variability mm-hmm. which we have to acknowledge unfortunately to the point that we cannot make for e- even an in inbred mice and uh a real um, mm-hmm. atlas. And one, one actually may then also wonder if there is really a glomerulum map. That word gets used a little bit loosely. It okay. uh, depends what kind of resolution and detail you want, but mm-hmm. one can actually wonder is there really a, glo- mm-hmm. a glomerulum map for a species?
1: Mm-hmm. But now, if I would take the, my two mice again and we have our identified glomerulus, how big is the probability that I would find the matching glomerulus in a, another animal in exactly the opposite position?
0: Yeah, that I that I don't know. Maybe we have only emphasized the cases where there is a mismatch. Okay. But but if you look more like the mm-hmm. the circle or the area, mm-hmm. I would say about <clears> twenty or thirty glomeruli for the two or three studies where this has been done. So twenty or thirty glomeruli out of three thousand six hundred is is quite small actually. If you That's wish, what I'm so. saying. Yeah.
1: So you could imagine that you have a rough patterning yeah. with a resolution of ten to twenty glomeruli, but yeah. that's still what ten percent of your of your total structure. One
0: percent, one percent,
1: one percent exactly, one yep. percent, and then within that, yep. okay, you have some jitter, but that is actually pretty precise, I would say, as sort of a non-expert in this domain. Well, from
0: a practical point of view, it, it's not precise enough for us to make a some kind of an atlas, right? Which we thought a, a few years ago we could do. We could make a probabilistic atlas, exactly right, where we have. But maybe we in the, in Drosophila again, although the number of uh, glomeruli and receptors is is much much lower there you can there it's really been possible to do so
1: yeah but the, the interesting thing is of course you apparently were expecting to find some precision in this atlas that were not satisfied
0: no I, I but wasn't but but others uh, were and no, they okay. and they use terms <laughs> so even now still in print uh, of stereotyped which mm-hmm. uh, from the old French type I think the stero- stereotype uh-huh. where you really make a photocopy right you have some kind right. of a template and you print mm-hmm an exact copy with maybe a little bit of dirt or so, but it's basically an exact copy, and that's not really the case, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't use that term either. What we like to say, after thinking about this for quite a while, uh, recognizable or reproducible, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not stereotyped. You cannot even, from the position of the glomeruli in the left bulb, predict with high degree of certainty those in the right bulb.
1: Okay. But then would you still go along with the idea that there is a rough patterning and then through some self-organizing process, this gets filled in and out of the result of the self-organization of the variability? Or would you say at this stage, look, it's better not to commit ourselves too strongly to the idea of a map because it's too ambiguous at this stage? Yeah,
0: and it, it can also uh, be uh, misleading in to, to, term, to think in terms of of mechanisms, right? If you really believe, I think some people still believe that that this map is extremely precise and... Is in variable positions, then the mechanisms that enable to produce that must be f- extremely complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if but if if you acknowledge that there is indeed a bit of jitter or variability or uncertainty, then it relaxes a little bit the demands you would put on these mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So when it's 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 more than just being uh, a little bit too strict or, um, or philosophical. We really want to know what kind of. Uh, um, Precision do we expect from the mechanisms that, that um, put that into place, which are largely unknown in, in my view uh, mm-hmm. today?
1: Right. But now, on top of that, it's not the case that we can think about these glomeruli as being really clean, uh, sphere type structures that are just neatly stacked together. You also have quite some variability in the shape of these glomeruli, so this this cluster of nerve endings themselves. So, what kind of variability do you see there?
0: So, yeah, a glomerulus is. Um, it's acellular, it doesn't have any cells in it, no nuclei, it's um, a few hundreds incoming axons that terminally arborize and make synaptic contact with the dendrites of the second order neurons, so this ball of synapses, that, that is a glomerulus which is a discrete uh, structure surrounded by some glia and periglomerular neurons and so on. We, we would like them to be, of course, all perfect spheres, <laughs> But that's indeed not the case. Some are a bit more uh, oblong, gated. Mm-hmm. Um, some are in the form of a halter with a central stalk and two balls hanging on it, which makes it a bit difficult sometimes to say is this one or two glomeruli. Um, the average diameter would be about fifty-five micron in the mouse, but also there there is a uh, quite some uh, quite some difference. So it's true it's not three thousand six hundred perfect spheres that are aligned. Moreover, there are different uh, uh, layers. In the dorsal part of the bulb, it's typically only one, one glomerulus, but uh, more ventrally in the bulb, there you have multiple glomeruli on top of each other, and deeper into the tissue and so on. So there is an another another dimension there.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So then, in but whatever the 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 structuring that takes place to get the patterning of the glomeruli, th- there is a belief that that the, the single genes expressed by the receptor neurons that in the end would also give identity to their axons would in some way play a role in this process?
0: Yes, that, that's been known for quite a while from, from uh, genetic data. You can replace the coding region of a receptor by the, uh, that of another one. In fact, we have even done in one case with an, an other G-protein copper receptor, the beta-2-anergic receptor, and you get um, a glomerulus. Mm-hmm. Again, a reproducible, recognizable place in some cases, it looks like it's a completely new glomerulus that wasn't there before. But there is, of course, space. If you have three thousand six hundred for a few more, um, you can also make smaller mutations down to point mutations in um, odorant receptors using gene targeting, and you can um, you can create novel glomerular identities, so glomeruli that probably are not there before. The receptor protein is also there along the axons all the way to the end and early in development, suggesting that it has something to do mechanistically with fasciculation, coalescence, convergence. Exactly how that works at the molecular level is I don't think uh, clear, or at least there is no consensus of how an odor receptor could do that with such precision again.
1: Mm -hmm. So then you spent quite some time than to try to show or to identify the location of these, these different genes that the receptor neurons express uh, in the genome. So wh- what kind of pattern do you find there?
0: The pattern I like to the term I like to use is actually haphazard, uh, which means maybe there is no clear pattern, but maybe it's not excluded. That there is a pattern. There are in the mouse approximately forty loci. Sites in the genome where you can find odor receptor genes. Uh, eight of them are solitary genes, which means make a basis up and downstream, there is no other odor receptor gene in the genome. These are the exceptions. So most genes come in clusters. The largest cluster is approximately 300 odor receptor genes, all stacked one next to the other. And the typical cluster has no other genes in them, non odor receptor genes, although, of course, there are also exceptions. So this this pattern, this distribution is, I would like to say, haphazard. There is no clear logic to it. It's not that every chromosome has one cluster or there are three huge ones or each cluster of genes is expressed in the same zone in the epithelium or encodes genes of the same family. Even that is not the case. Um, for lack of a better term, and I welcome new terms, um, I'd like to call it haphazard.
1: Mm-hmm. But So how many genes do we have in the mouse?
0: Genes with an intact open reading uh, frame, approximately 1,200. Uh, in fact, the mouse genome is not completely sequenced. We check our favorite clusters once in a while, and the number of genes decreases, actually, from month oh. to month. There are genes disappearing. There are probably mistakes of assembly. Mm-hmm. That's a recent experience. So the jury is still out, on the, on the but the number seems to converge to 1,200, maybe 1,100.
1: With the total mouse genome?
0: Probably twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand. Okay. So quite, a, quite a significant fraction. Yeah, right, exactly.
1: Yeah, but the, so now we have. So here, of these, we have these twenty thousand genes. But now, of of the those twelve hundred that relate to the receptor neurons, how much is the variability in base pairs of these genes?
0: If you take two random odor receptor genes, um, the average. Is it nucleotide amino acid? I think amino acid homology was thirty-three percent or something like that. And it's not very high. Mm-hmm. There are some motifs in the amino acid sequence. One of them is May Drive Another one is Fast Cash. Mm-hmm. Easy to remember. And those yeah. are kind of typical for odorant receptors. If you see those two in a sequence, you very very high likelihood that these are odorant receptors. So they come in families. Uh, you can define a family however you want. Uh, there have been, of course, debates about that. If it's 80% cutoff, 60% cutoff. Um, a nomenclature developed in 2002 by Stuart Firestone was based on these families, and he was in the 200-something families uh, of these 1,200 genes.
1: Mm-hmm. So but th- how long is the longest one you would find of all these 1,200 genes? Well, they're all
0: very similar in, in, uh, in length. Okay. Approximately uh, 1,000 nucleotides, of so about 330 amino acids. They have uh, quite a short N-terminus and quite a short C-terminus. So a big part of the, of the hmm. protein is, is presumably in the membrane.
1: Okay, good. So, then, so uh, as a family, as a total family, they're fairly uniform. So now we have this strange phenomenon that some seem tightly clustered. On the genome, and others are sort of singular, sitting out there somewhere in isolation. So, what could be the consequence of grouping all these genes together? What could be a possible advantage in in transcription or or reproduction of of a genome? Is there any anything you can say about that?
0: Well, typically, gene families are clustered. That that's the case uh, in general. Uh, genes that are related. Which then multiple copies typically come in a cluster, they could have evolved by unequal uh, crossing over so by mistakes actually during meiosis, um, we have an extra copy of the gene duplicated uh, created which then can uh, then mutate away. Um, whether or not that creates an advantage is, is another issue, but uh, obviously having genes with the same function clustered opens the opportunity for local control of the cluster of regulatory elements that um, decide or help decide within that cluster which of the genes is, is turned mm-hmm.
1: on. Right. But now, so, th- so in terms of the control, this might already make a difference, right? So for olfaction, do you have in mind that there is such a variability in also these control signals that, for instance, you want to have one control signal to switch on a whole group of, of receptor genes while you want to have a tighter control over another one, this might be also, let's say, um, differential for, let's say, the different subsystems that you would find in the epithelium, right? Where maybe one you might have very coarse control over the gene expression, and in other regions you want a very tight control for gene expression.
0: So, do you do you mean in terms of numbers of cells that express it? For instance, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that is, uh, I think, underappreciated and also not so easy to to quantify. Is that um, you find often in papers also that each receptor gene is expressed in 1 out of a 1,000 cells. Actually, it should be 1 in 1,200. Even that is not true. There is uh, two orders of magnitude of difference. The, the champion is more 28, uh, for which, um, as far as I know, still no ligand has been found, and that's expressed in about 100,000 cells in a mouse. It's truly, uh, again, a rule breaker. There are other um, genes that are expressed in just a few hundred cells, so the probability of expressing, expression, which we mean operationally, the frequency or the number of cells in a given mouse that expresses a given gene varies over two orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Um, is that evolutionarily determined? Are the, the genes that are expressed in many cells, are they more important? Are, therefore, there need to be more cells of them? I don't know. Uh, but it's, of course, interesting for us in the long run to look at it experimentally. Mm-hmm. What, what in the promoter? Uh, just upstream of the coding region,
1: Uh, affects this probability. Right, exactly. Because another angle on this could also be, because you're saying, well, from the perspective of olfaction, it looks haphazard, right? Like arbitrary. But you could also argue, well, look, but it's not impossible that some of these genes are expressed in other parts of the body, playing a different role. And for that, you want to have certain kinds of control sequences at work.
0: So that's that's an emerging uh, story. There has been... um, Ever since the beginning of uh, the auto receptor gene saga, uh, there's been papers about OR genes expressed in the testis, particularly in sperm. But many many genes are expressed there, perhaps less interesting. There has been some evidence that they may be involved in perhaps chemotaxis of mm-hmm. sperm, uh, swimming towards the the egg and so on. But that's all quite limited. So apart from that, there are um, isolated cases of genes, odor receptor genes, that are expressed outside the nose. If they are also expressed in the nose and olfactory neurons, they would qualify as an odorant receptor—not with the O from odorant or olfaction. If they are not expressed in the nose and only outside the nose, yeah, then you cannot even call them an odorant receptor. They have just been hijacked or used in evolution uh, for something else. Mm-hmm. Now the one the one that comes to mind is this uh, MOR18-2. It comes. On, has several other names, which is really a strange uh, a gene. It is expressed clearly in the nose. It uh, we, there's ligands for it, and so on and so on. They have glomelia. It's also expressed in a small number of cells in, in kidneys. And mice with a knockout in that gene have a problem with regulating their blood pressure, mm-hmm. which is something you would never, never have thought uh, to even look for. So it's something that that needs to uh, to be to be looked at further. And indeed, in those cells in the kidney, the mechanisms that control the expression are probably different from those in the nose. They're not random. They're probably much more regulated and so on. So uh, perhaps they have a different promoter. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same coding region can have two promoters, a few kilobases apart, and one promoter is used in the nose and the other one is used outside the nose. That would be one simple
1: solution. But now would you... Would you be willing to then reconsider the notion of haphazard, that maybe it looks haphazard because not all the constraints have been taken into account, but if you would take on board the idea that these same receptors are also expressed in other parts of the body, at other points during development, for other functions possibly, that this requires other other levels of control that then require this kind of structuring of, of the genome? Would you find that a reasonable alternative interpretation?
0: So I'm referred with haphazard to the organization in the genome, not the expression per se. Okay. I don't think there is rampant expression of odor receptor genes outside the nose, even in certain parts of development. Probably would have been found by now. So it's not the case that every odor receptor gene is at some point somewhere expressed somewhere else. Um, on the other hand, you know many senior libraries, many uh, express sequence tags, ESTs, many microarrays that keep Popping up odor receptors all the time to the annoyance often of these investigators because mm-hmm. they don't know what to do with it. So, I think it's been um, ignored a bit or underestimated um, too long in our field this non-olfactory expression. But on the other hand, there is no rampant expression of OR genes outside the nose. I think mm-hmm. any any time in development.
1: Even though there is plenty of chemical sensing going on in other parts in the body.
0: Yeah. So the, these odor receptors in the end are not. Uh, they don't have a very unique. Uh, receptor structure. they are G-protein coupled receptors, seven transmembrane proteins, so Mm their amino acid sequence snakes seven times through the membrane. There's many other GPCRs. In fact, many of the um, drugs you buy in a pharmacy with a prescription are designed against uh, GPCRs, agonists or antagonists and uh, what have you. So from that point of view, it's not surprising that uh, some of these so-called OR genes, so because Mm -hmm. they have an OR-like sequence, are simply used by other cells to detect small molecules as Mm -hmm. their colleagues, the non-OR GPCRs, non-olfactory GPCRs Mm -hmm. as they do, right? Exactly right. That's indeed how pharmacologists Mm -hmm. talk now about their GPCR genes. They call them non-olfactory GPCRs, by the way. That's their GPCRs minus the 1200 that we Mm -hmm. work
1: on. But it might then also imply that the direction the field is taking is also, well, maybe what we used to call an olfactory receptor gene is actually part again of a larger family of, let's say, ligand-bound uh, receptors, and by extent, a subfamily of these have a specialization that they're expressed yeah. in the epithelium. Is that is that not where things are going now?
0: Well, there, I mean, this was was known from the beginning. There are G protein-coupled receptors, and that that's an ancient motif for okay. many many uh, many receptor types. So, in that vein, we we did. Uh, Ten years ago, we we reported this rather surprising finding. We did what we call the receptor swap. We replaced the coding region of an odorant receptor M seventy one, for which we had ligands, mm-hmm. acetophenone aldehyde. We replaced it with the beta two adrenergic receptor. That's the most, the best characterized GPCR. Also, I think the first one to be cloned twenty years ago. And lo and behold, the neuron that expressed now the beta two adrenergic receptor from the M seventy one locus now form a new at a location quite far from the M71 glomyoli. We also know that these neurons respond to beta-2 AR agonists, isoproterol, in a dose-dependent uh, dose, uh, fashion. So if you didn't know that in these mice the beta-2 AR was expressed from this M71 locus, and I would show you all these images, you, you, would, you would not be able to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. So that's another, of course, artificial experimental evidence that perhaps there is nothing so special about odor receptors in these, uh, right, in these exactly. regards. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Now, there are a lot of GPCRs expressed in the nose, in olfactory neurons. That's another thing that's been neglected, um, perhaps a bit on purpose, by our field. Dozens and dozens of GPCRs are expressed. That's come up in several screens already, in several papers. Some are expressed in all olfactory neurons, like the dopamine type 2 receptor, very frequent um, uh, used for drugs against schizophrenia. All olfactory neurons, all mature neurons, express the dopamine type two receptor, which is also a GPCR. Mm-hmm. Right. So why why is the OR can it uh, instruct axons to form glomeruli and not other GPCRs that are expressed there anyway? Is another another issue for uh, further research. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's a question of the timing of expression, the the level, or are they expressed at extremely high levels, or something else we uh, we are missing?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. But then, so. So now we have um, a bit of an idea of, of this sorting problem you see in, in, in the olfactory bulb. That means you have these, a huge population, million plus receptor neurons sitting there, sending their, their projections into the olfactory bulb, um, initially in a rather disorganized way. And then if you by some sort of magic, it comes out sorted at the other end, and all these processes terminate in their preferred glomerulus. So, um, so in that, and in some sense, we looked at the different aspects of that sorting story that, that could play a role. And we see actually all of them are rather problematic. Like the idea of zoning is, is problematic. Um, so, what are the alternative interpretations of this? What would be an alternative view of how this sorting process could work?
0: So a model that we proposed a while ago, and not talk about this this morning, is that of homotypic and homophilic interactions, that the odor receptor protein, which we know is expressed very highly along the axons all the way to the end, that odor receptor proteins of the same type, so homotypic, interact with each other, homophilic, and that would either by itself create some kind of a specific adhesion, or perhaps... Combined with a signal transduction event in the axons, and that would cause these axons to fasciculate, to form fascicles, to form bundles, which is probably a step that leads towards the formation of a glomerulus. Mm-hmm. Right, axons that stick together and at some point, perhaps even stop growing and and and, and form their uh, their glomerulus. That is one model that we favor. It would be a parsimonious model evolutionarily because if a new ordered receptor is created in evolution, with an amino acid sequence that's sufficiently different. Then these homophilic interactions are, are different now, and now you would have a new identity and a new is created, mm-hmm. without any anything else.
1: But but wait, I'm not sure if you, if that's the whole story then, because you would still might have to generate an overabundance of these of these processes to have this this sorting process, the yep. self organizing sorting to work out, because you lack specificity now.
0: You mean neurons and axons, or uh, that's
1: right. I mean these receptor neurons that throw out these processes. If they have these attractive and repellent interactions, you might want to throw out quite a large number of them in the hope that a small subset yep. will actually reaches a target. Or so not. Th-
0: that's the issue of of, of selection, and uh, again, something that is um, I think ignored or um, overlooked in the field is how many. What's the success rate of the whole p- process? To put it uh, in a simple way, of every hundred neurons in the epithelium that are born and project an axon that gets to the bulb, how many of those send their axon to the correct place in the sense that it innovates the correct glomerulus and it survives? Right. That's a very simple question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the success rate? And we don't know that. We intuitively think that it could be very high, perhaps as close as 100%, but mm-hmm. there's no such thing in biology. If it's quite low, though, let's say it's less than 50%, then there is an opportunity for selection, but negative selection if you wish, for weeding out processes, as you call them, axons that are completely off the wall and project to the wrong part of the bulb and are hopelessly lost, or um, or axons that enter a glomerulus that is very close, but not exactly of the same type, mm-hmm. right? And they could, over a period of hours of days, being eliminated. So there is no method to look at the success rate. And also, when people look at these images, I don't think they think about that mm-hmm. that some axons could not make it it's Mm -hmm. just not in that sense these pictures are somewhat misleading perhaps they give you the end product the final results Mm -hmm. but it doesn't tell you about the mechanism necessarily right
1: but possibly in different stages of development you might see signatures of that process at work
0: well, so in general, the the brain has an exuberance, as, mm-hmm. as it's often called, uh, m- more neurons produced than necessary, more axonal processes produced than necess- necessary. That's not the case, by the way, with olfactory axons. They never have multiple uh, processes; just one per. Uh, at least that's a dogma: one per neuron. Mm-hmm. But um, again, I, I would not be surprised at all if, if someone finds out that the success rate is very small, mm-hmm. uh, very low. That there is an exuberance of neurons being produced, that many of them. Never make it, and they get removed so quickly from the system within hours of days, uh, and everything is asynchronously developing anyway that we would just be missing them. Right. But if you would look specifically for them and really with very specific methods, perhaps you could you could find them. There is a lot of cell death going on in the olfactory epithelium. You can use uh, any marker you wish for apoptosis, even in adult mice. Plenty and plenty of cells dying, as is the case in every epithelium. So at least there is a, a basis there for. Uh, Cell death playing a role in sculpting, if you wish, the these projections. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So now another step in because so th- there's there's a lot of work behind these observations that you're sharing now with, with me. Um but then as, as one step in that whole process, you also have decided to clone uh, a mouse. So how did that help you? How did that help you in understanding this system?
0: So that was for the gene regulation um issue a very popular idea back from the early days from 91 the percuxile paper was that the way an olfactory neuron expresses one gene stably and irreversibly at high levels is by some kind of genetic alteration in the genome that's the case with lymphocytes Uh, b cells make one antibody with a heavy and a light chain and t-cell receptors the classical alpha beta t-cells have one alpha and one beta chain and they do so by irreversibly changing their genetic material. There are pieces of DNA that are lost, so obviously irreversible, and in some cases inverted, that uh, that, that underlie these this... Um,
1: but th- surely the, the problem of, of cell faith is broader than that, right? It's not only for the lymphocytes. I mean, any cell at some point in development is committed to become of a certain identity like a skin cell or a liver cell or a heart cell etc so why why do you highlight the lymphocytes in this in this case
0: because they have so many similarities with olfactory neurons they um, they have a large number of genes at their disposal and each neuron or each lymphocyte expresses only one of them i mean it's not only me who who makes this analogy so this 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 is what's pervasive in our thinking i must say that many of the people working in olfaction at least in the early days were actually ex-immunologists had a PhD or opposed to kineminology, so maybe they were thinking along these lines. Now, But, but
1: uh, don't you agree that today we, we might as well say, well, uh, the, the analog might as well have been a skin cell?
0: Well, but skin cells don't have, to our knowledge, a large number of genes of the same f- family of data disposal of which they have to pick one for expression. That's just not, not the
1: case. But in the end, they have to pick a subset of all possible yes. genes to express.
0: So to go back even, even uh, longer in history when these gene rearrangements in B lymphocytes were discovered in the 70s by Susumu Tonagawa and others, there was the idea that other aspects of differentiation and development would also be regulated by irreversible gene rearrangements. But the cloning experiments of John Gurdon and others were a a strong argument against that, because you uh, you could produce normal or fairly normal animals from differentiated cells, and if these cells had shattered pieces of DNA irreversibly, then they would not have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? But indeed, there was a period of time, 30, 40 years ago, where some it was thought that many um, differentiation processes would be governed by irreversible changes. And right. we don't think that's the case anymore. So it's
1: basically like, look, your your faith is, is set by some switch, and now basically, in some sense, you irreversibly wipe out a bit of your genome. Yep. So from then on, that's it.
0: And And also the discovery of the Possibility of making induced pluripotent stem cells, the iPS cells, was mm-hmm. another argument against that. You can take a differentiated cell and sort of reconvert it into an, uh, an embryonic stem cell that or like cell that can go any any way. That's also an argument against that. Irre- irreversible changes of mm-hmm. any type, actually, not necessarily Correct. genetic.
1: But then, how did this this cloned mouse that 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 you built, which was quite a tour in itself to 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 build it, uh, help you to understand this this? Determination and stabilization of of the cell faith in the olfactory system. So,
0: if, if neurons that express give a given receptor, let's take our favorite receptor again, M71, if neurons expressing that receptor have made an irreversible genetic alteration to do so, then a, neuro, uh, a mouse cloned from the nucleus of such a neuron would be monoclonal essentially. All mm-hmm. the neurons, or the majority of them, would express M71. That was the, the mm-hmm. prediction. If these changes are irreversible. If they're somehow reversible during the cloning procedure, which not many people have thought about, but I sometimes think about this, if they would have been reversible during the cloning procedure, then we got to draw the wrong conclusion. So it was essentially a negative result. We got, let's say, a normal mouse out Mm -hmm. of the nucleus of a neuron expressing M71. These neurons expressed not necessarily M71, but other own receptor genes. Hence, there were no irreversible changes. Mm -hmm. If you clone a mouse... With a lymphocyte, Rudy Enish has done that a- around the same time. Then you really get a monoclonal mouse. These are mm. spectacular but phenotypes. All the B-lymphocytes in that mouse make just the same antibody. Right.
1: Yeah. But how come that cloned mouse is even viable? You, it, it might have been possible it would not even have been a viable cell.
0: Yeah. The, the, I think our paper and that of Rudy Enish and Richard Axel was the first to clone with post-mitotic mature neurons. That mm-hmm. was... Uh, that was not not uh, not necessarily given. The success rate of of cloning by nuclear transfer is quite low. I must say, mm-hmm. it's in the single-digit percentages. Some of the data are a bit massaged in these tables, but uh, you know, it's never more than ten percent. Mm-hmm. And so it could still be that the other ninety percent die for uh, for fundamental biological reasons. Okay. We, we will only know when we get uh, we able to get the frequency
1: higher, of mm-hmm. course. Right. Okay. But so now that you know that there that the, there might still be an irreversible change, but I mean, it doesn't translate if you clone the from that cell a whole new mouse, right? So um, what now is your alternative interpretation?
0: Well, if it's not genetic, it must be epigenetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the the, mo- the more uh, modern, perhaps fashionable way of looking at that.
1: But, but wait, it could also be... Imagine I, I have another cell that's expressing other genes, that is controlling the expression of the genes in this receptor neuron. So now you clone only from this receptor neuron, but this controlling unit is gone. Now the control signal is gone, so this this receptor neuron again is expressing its full genome.
0: Yes, but, but at least that gene or receptor gene that was expressed in the original cell, that gene was not irreversibly... Uh, altered. That's right, and exactly. That's, that's what we said, nothing more.
1: Okay. So it's not irreversibly changed, just within that one cell. So you you, you do consider the possibility within the organism there might be additional control signals that regulate that.
0: Well, what I was worried about, and still a bit now is that experimentally during the process of nuclear transfer, which is a complex procedure which we don't understand, that that change that was mm-hmm. present in the M71 locus was somehow reverted. You know, if exactly. you have a thing that flips back and forth, mm-hmm. it just flips back, right? And then right. We, we don't see it anymore, but that doesn't mean there was no change before that.
1: Yeah. Sure, you, you, absolutely, yeah. because maybe the, the whole confirmation, the confirmation of the DNA was such that um, um, m- maybe the, the confirmation of the DNA was such that it was put into a metastable state that prevented further transcription, but that by let's say, perturbing the system again in the cloning procedure, it could sort of flip back into yep. a state that could express itself. I can, I, can, I can see that. But so now if you say epigenetic, that's, of course, a little bit tricky because at this point epigenetic just means, well, some factor that's not genetic, right? But that basically could be from the whole of the universe to the diet to other cells, developmental trajectories, whatever. So if you say epigenetic, what, what would you have exactly in mind?
0: Well, th- th- that's not what I say, but that's that's what other people say. And indeed, it's very broad. Um, I mean, it, in some ways, it doesn't say very much because it only says it's not genetic. But that's exactly th- th- right. That we sort of knew there is no genetic change. The DNA isn't changed. We think it's not changed in the auto-receptor gene locus. But I, I would think that at this point in time, we really don't have a good view of how, I mean, I'm the first to admit that, how a neuron... Expresses one allele of one gene at mm-hmm. high levels. We we just don't understand that. It sort of have clues of why it could be a small number of genes, mm-hmm. but why it's just one that is very difficult for anyone to uh, to think on or show experimentally.
1: Okay, but then what's the next step there to solve this?
0: Probably development of new technologies, mm-hmm. miniaturization. We have to work with single cells. Uh, one can sort cells expressing the same receptor using a cell sorter with GFP. But even then, you look at the population of cells. So mm-hmm. we have to look at, at single cell, uh, and that's all coming uh, coming along now. There's RNA seq is now being developed for single cells. Um, so I think it's uh, as usual. New new technologies will um, will give us new ways of looking at old problems.
1: But without a clear hypothesis, the technology might also lead you astray.
0: Yeah. Um, or hypotheses, multiple hypotheses. You want you want to ask, basically, neurons that express receptor A, how are they different from neurons expressing mm-hmm. receptor B? And let's say that A and B are two similar genes in the same cluster, as close as you can get. What is different between those cells? That would be a very simple uh, approach, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you would take anything you find, differentially expressed or differentially methylated or hypomethylated, because one of them could be causative. Others could be... Consequence of neurons expressing receptor A versus B, but other changes or differences could be explained or help explain why it's ex- receptor mm-hmm. A in, in one versus the other. But I think in the long run, we have to look at single cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's possible now. There is okay. really a big, big progress in uh, single cell studies.
1: Mm-hmm. But but you think to, to do that effectively, you do need new technologies?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. but that's always been the case, no?
1: Uh, well, depends. I mean, Given, given the question you pose, you might have to develop a specific technology, but you don't have to wait for things to show up at the horizon. But for the, I mean in your research, you're very technology heavy in, in your approach, right So one thing you described is um, this, this nanostring system that, that you have been using to identify and also other aspects of this whole regulatory system within uh, the cell for gene expression around this notion of, of, of the P element. So, so, what has been the insight there with respect to this regulation question?
0: So, we have, we have adopted nanostring because there was, probably still is no good method to look at all these odin receptor genes at the same time, in the same sample. Um, typical way of looking at it is by qPCR, quantitative PCR, but that's a, really asking a lot, doing that for hundreds of genes from one sample, a lot of pipetting. There's microarrays, I think their specificity is somewhat questionable. Uh to to say it nicely. Mm -hmm. Um, Often these uh, probes are uh, from the 3' non-translated region which is computationally determined so not experimentally validated because it's difficult to do so. So we have chosen for this nanostring um, with which since we chose only to make probes against all receptor coding regions we could only only look at half the genes. So it's for us an assay. We can really look at close to 600 genes half the repertoire in one sample of RNA of about a microgram. Mm -hmm. Um, without any kind of amplification. It's an assay. I mean, by itself, it doesn't show anything. Mm -hmm. And with that assay, we showed that mice that lacked had a mutation in this um, 317 base pair element, which we call the P element, that there are 10 genes differentially expressed, nine are downregulated. There is less RNA in the mutant mouse versus the wild type, and one is slightly upregulated. And they're all within about 200 kilobase from this so-called P element So that shows that that element somehow regulates the expression of OR genes in the cluster at the
1: organism level. Mm -hmm. And you believe that this might be a key step in also determining the faith of these these receptor neurons?
0: Yeah, one of them. uh, Mm -hmm. It's not the only one. There is, um, we also said that uh, clearly in our paper, um, that it's of course not by itself explaining how an olfactory neuron expresses one allele of one gene, but it's one of the several layers, possibly hierarchical layers of control mechanisms that altogether ensure that the large majority, if not all, mature neurons expressing one allele of one gene. But mm-hmm. by itself, it doesn't; it uh, it cannot be responsible for right.
1: that. So, how complex do you think is this control hierarchy? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Again, we we will we will answer that when we know the whole hierarchy. Um, it's not going to be solved immediately. I still have many years to go uh, before my pension, <laughs> um, and um, it has has multiple aspects to it, multiple levels. There is also cellular selection. I, I believe that occasionally neurons are produced that make two receptors, or maybe even more, mm-hmm. right. and perhaps they are lost somehow, lost in the system by negative selection, and that. You can look for that too. That would be another control mechanism, mm-hmm. right? You you produce, you eliminate the cells you don't want. So uh, it's not going to be solved uh, anytime soon. The journals, of course, like us to claim in our papers, in top journals, in the title and so on, that this is now the final breakthrough. And mm-hmm.
1: um, But how many layers of control do you expect? Is it like single digits? Is it 17.
0: A dozen? <laughs> 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 no, multiple, and a diff- different, uh, at, at the genomic level positioning of, of uh, clusters for expression, there's some evidence for that recently with, with nuclear aggregation that um, the gene that's expressed is in a different position of the nucleus than, than the other genes. Mm-hmm. That could be one of the mechanisms, but it cannot explain why it's only one, right? Right. Uh, that's right. That's always the problem. Why, why it's just one? Mm-hmm. And... Um, but it's not. Um, I mean, I think an, an um, satisfying insight, level of insight. C- the question is, how much? When are you satisfied with saying I've understood this? A satisfying level of insight is is feasible, conceivable, the next decade or two, but but not not sooner. Mm-hmm. And so we so hope, but of course, then still before your retirement. <laughs> and it, we hope, of course, that it has some general relevance. That mm-hmm. we have not just explained how this particular weird family of genes is controlled, but that it has some insights that are more generally relevant to biology. Exactly right,
1: yeah. because in some, we, we started the conversation with how you use the olfactory system as a model to study development, yeah. right? But now, in some sense, we ended up dealing with a question that seems rather specific for the olfactory system, which is, how do I get such a precise expression of a single gene yeah. in a single neuron? So, so how now do, what's this telling us in the end about development?
0: Well, again, we will we will say this at, at the end uh, whether it was worth it and whether it was. But I I, I want
1: to know it now.
0: I was once uh, a few years ago with uh, Michael Brown in in Beijing, coincidentally at the same time at an institute, and the graduate students all ask him, you know, what what? How do I find an interesting biological problem? Right, that gives me a Nobel Prize like mm-hmm. he did. He got. And he had a very good answer. He said, you can pick almost any problem to start with and you have to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you hit very deeply, you will come to fundamental principles and mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And so the angle or the approach point at which you start to study biological phenomenon or question perhaps matters less. It's how deep you go. Right? Mm-hmm. And, but I, I, I constantly try to remind myself that we are not working on just the sense of smell of a mouse. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can just say that very honestly. That we hope that that what we find and what we what we uncover that that is more more important than just olfactory system of mm-hmm. the mouse. Okay, that right. that is a conscious uh, light motif, mm-hmm. uh, if you wish. Um, it's a hope and a, and a, and um a, and a plan.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So then to to get to the finish line, uh, two things. So so actually, you told me that it's exactly twenty years ago that you got initiated in this experimental study of olfaction when you entered the lab of Axel as a postdoc. Yeah. That's correct, yeah? And um, so now, given your experience in this field and also your many accomplishments, what would be uh, Peter's law that we should adhere to in in trying to understand how the brain works?
0: Well, uh, I I don't like this question to begin with, how the brain works. That is uh, so overly ambitious and probably uh, even nonsensical. You can only hope at least the present technologies, to understand a bit of it, an aspect of it, perhaps one circuit, one 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 small step, it's a com- some kind of Flemish modesty, perhaps, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we, you know, perhaps with time and we when we understand more smaller bits of it, more more deeper and fundamental, we can we can. But I I definitely never said that, or never will claim that we want to figure out how the brain works. Mm-hmm. That is such a big big question, so far away. Mm-hmm. One has to m- maybe say this in grant proposals. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: So Peter's yeah. law is to be <laughs> modest
0: <laughs> and 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 try to answer a an problem that is answerable at that time with the technologies available at that time. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think other people have said that too and realized that too. Mm-hmm. It's solving the solvable, or uh, Peter Metaverse said that, right?
1: Okay. Yeah. But then, uh, the other hand is um, so five years from now I'm going to go to Frankfurt and I'm going to confront you with your predictions of today. Mm-hmm. So, what what's what's the prediction that you're most passionate about today? That you that you really spend most of your time on? That you really want to have tested five years from now? That I can confront you with <laughs> then?
0: Well, the t- but that's again technologically it's the single cell studies, I think. Yeah, but I'm not the only one who's thinking that. That is but I really, want a
1: prediction, Peter.
0: But that is coming so clearly there, and there's not much published. But it's and it will give us really new insights um, because we typically. When we look at the biological phenomenon, we look at a population of cells, and mm-hmm. we are missing a lot. For instance, to come back to my, to our p-element, the p-element shows a reduction at, in expression at the, uh, at the population level. We all hope that we have a nice Gaussian curve, right, mm-hmm. which is shifted. But if the Gaussian curve is is split into a bimodal curve, you would get exactly the same results, mm-hmm. and it's actually erroneous results because we now we now misled. So, so I really believe. For our system and the things we are interested in, uh, we have to look at single cells. It is doable. We are doing and other people will do it. And in five years, I think there will be nice insights coming from that.
1: But that's a very modest prediction, right? So you're saying five years from now, I'll be able to look into single cells in the olfactory system and and, and see their genetic expression dynamics.
0: It's already possible, yes, with RNA-seq. Yeah,
1: but for if you example. can already do it, it's not a very exciting prediction for five years from well, now. Well, but
0: also, I, do we get something interesting out of that? I mean, is, or is it, will we, we get, be we be lost in uh, in details or in mm-hmm. variability and so on? I hope and I believe that there will be new insights coming out of it, which we didn't even
1: But would you say five years now? from now, you have nailed this problem of of the cell phase stabilization? No, no, not at all. No? no? No,
0: I don't want to put any year any okay. on that. No. Uh-huh.
1: That that's really a longer project.
0: Five-year plans so for, for the communists. No? I know <laughs> that. That's why <what> I'm asking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Peter Wombard. And, Bombard, and, and yeah? for uh, grant um, organizations. That's yeah. right. Yeah.
1: So Peter Wombard, thank you very much for this conversation.
0: Thanks, Paul. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometrics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the european seventh research framework program for more interviews recorded lectures or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems go to csnnetwork.eu
1: and thank you for listening